March the 6th, 2016, lecture discussion number 232 on the Book of Romans. For those of uh, those of you who might be just joining us, I know the internet audience is uh, growing significantly because of our new experiment that we're doing. Okay, significantly is a relative term. Uh, I mentioned to the uh, congregation here in the pregame that we've gone virus. That's really exciting for us. You might call it viral. That would be a mistake. But I'm still very interested in all the people that are watching us on the Internet. And I've got a lot of your letters and very thankful for what you say. And we're doing what we can. Obviously, we have a long way to go. We're experimenting with things. Pat Pat and the Hat and I were, were trying to solve the audio system and made some real progress. Dave is working on different things, as is uh, TJ and some of the others, trying to figure out how we can make it better. And it's an ongoing process, so please give us a little patience. So uh, that just get that out of the way. I'll read a letter here in a minute that will address it uh, even further. I should mention that we are currently um, navigating through Romans chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. Those four chapters discuss or they focus on the nation of Israel. That's what their primary emphasis is, the sign of the wife of God. Israel as a nation, Israel as a people, is a sign for us. It is also called the sign of the root. But mostly it is the sign of the wife of YHVH. So we should look at the nation of Israel, which has not existed until since uh, for thousands of years until 1948, and recognize that that is a sign for us as we are a sign for them. So the sign of the wife and the sign of the taken bride. I concede it does not seem to be a study in the book of Romans for most people, at least immediately. However, it is my hope that when we are done, uh, which will be never, that's a joke, please laugh occasionally, improves my morale. Thank you for the obligatory laugh. I need a laugh track, something to prompt you, right? I'm working on it. I'm really working on it. That's the truth. I actually I want, I want a laugh track and a theme song. I will not take suggestions. But it is my goal that everybody at some point will reflect on this serpentine path we've taken um, most recently and then reread Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11 and see how it, in fact, I believe, uh, melds together. Perhaps you might not agree with my me- method. Um, perhaps you will. I'll, lack, I'll likewise acknowledge that the mathematics are not favorable for me in this endeavor. I have seen them. I compute them, as you might expect, and all of you know that. I'm going to illustrate this in just a second. I'm going to offer an exhibit to the court. What it is is a letter that I received recently. Uh, let me find it here. It is from Joni from Cincinnati. And she says this, to take off my glasses. Notice the Internet audience now just switched off all of their devices. because I need to recognize that. Hello, Pastor Chronister and all those at Cliffside who make this ministry possible. After finding you about a year ago, I have listened and re-listened to your messages on every source I could find. First was sermon audio. That led me to Cliffside webpage and then podcast in case I'd missed any sermons. Well, finding you isn't exactly correct. I was doing the equivalent of Bible roulette on sermon audio one night. 
there are over 23,000 speakers. And I was in a spiritual crisis. What I had been following was a softer version of the prosperity message. I thought I was using discernment by recognizing and dismissing the obvious overt charlatans. Ah, pride. I find I'm not that smart at all. So I had been crying for many, many months out to the Lord for help. Just when society had everyone coming out of the closet, I was literally going into mine to pray. Matthew 6 is what that reference is for her. Back to you. I prayed, Lord, help me find a teacher to guide me in your truth. As the many names scrolled by yours, or scrolled by, yours was the one I stopped on. 23,000 to one. This was not a coincidence. This past year I have followed, well, tried to follow you. <laughs> I thought I would use post-it notes on a large wall with all the scriptures that eventually tie together. Have you seen the movie, A Beautiful Mind? It's about a brilliant but mentally unstable man, John Nash. Obviously, uh, I'm familiar with John Nash, the great mathematician. Uh, you realize his behavior is crazy when he sees his many notes fluttering in his workshed. If you ever went into my office, you would see paper taped everywhere to remind me where I have been. So I really appreciate this, uh, uh, Joni. I now use scribblers instead, she says. Ha, ha, ha. So I've got her doing exactly what I do. That's fantastic. There is one person. My goal, of course, is to try to get all of you to think like me, right? I have tried to share you with just about everyone who will listen. Some have checked out your website. You are a hard sell. <laughs> yes, ma'am, I am a hard sell. I, I can't even begin to explain it to you. She says, goes on to say, I can't believe it. It's like you're the best kept secret. I know one friend who has contacted you, Sharon in Tennessee. I have a letter from Sharon. I don't have time to read it, obviously, today. It's a beautiful letter. And she talks about what this ministry has meant to her, what, what you guys are doing, what it has meant, and why you're doing it. I know we're a small little group uh, parasitically attached to a church and struggling, but um, the Internet audience is very responsive. So, hi, Sharon in Tennessee. We also have Sharon in Texas. I've got too many Sharons now to keep track of. I have one friend who has contacted you, Sharon in Tennessee. I hope there will be more. I include a pizza or fried chicken offering. We knew we had brisket today, so we didn't bring the chicken and the, and the pizza today. How awesome must it be to fellowship and ask questions after the sermon, realizing, of course, you probably just answer with more questions. This is exactly what I... <laughs> Wait till you see the sermon today, huh? A heartfelt thank you for all you have meant to my relearning that God is never not God. That as far as I wandered off course, he never left me. That I am as secure as your duct-taped tile enclosure in your house. And I, so that tells you that even little details like that that I slip into the sermons, for those of you who don't know, uh, Lori and I, for the first time in 27 years, are are totally tearing our house down to the studs, room by room. We've always worked on other people's homes, especially me. Uh, now we're doing our own. And I never had time. Our tub enclosures have been bad for 20 years, ever since Christopher threw Eric uh, into one and broke it into pieces. And we've used duct tape and visqueen to kind of survive. And now we're tearing it all out. So... Uh, 
Joni, the duct tape is not as secure as you thought. We, we got it out. Most of it we didn't have to take out because obviously it degraded significantly. Thank you, Joni, for your letter. Uh, I, I especially appreciate uh, certain aspects of it. Perhaps, Supper Dave here, uh, we could commission a new T-shirt, uh, a coffee mug or something. We do have, we do sell T-shirts and coffee mugs. How many have we sold, Dave? Four. So it's gone virus also. Um, but anyway, I thought Cliffside Community Chapel, a hard sell. Are you hearing that subwoofer beep? Yeah, it's uh, it's popping. So there, fixed it. I have to deal with that later. Oops, where am I now? Now let's see how we're doing. How's that? Okay, we'll try it. And obviously uh, something I have to work on. Okay, then really, really fast, and then we'll get moving. I have to watch the time here. Uh, we got this from Sharon from Texas. Uh, last week I said a couple of things I wanted to do. You can tell I, I, I looked at myself on the uh, YouTube channel and decided that the one thing I needed to do was wear black with black stripes. You remember that? Because I was not uh, my, uh, how do I put it? This is a side, or it was a side view. Now it's not. I'm getting confused. But the side view showed me my side profile. Not good. So today I went all black hoping I'd be obscured. But uh, Sharon from Texas wrote this. And I happened to mention that, uh, that people wanted to see Supper Dave and Bill the Cow specifically. And I said, well, we can't do that. They're probably wanted in seven or eight states. We've got to be careful. And here's what she writes. I promise that I am not a bounty hunter. And, and if there is a price on the head of Supper Dave and, or Bill the Cow, as P Pastor Steve clearly intimated, I know nothing about it and have no plans to enhance my retirement savings at their expense. So please make yourself visible in the filming. No, <laughs> we're not doing that. Well, we're not crazy. <laughs> Maybe do an Alfred Hitchcock thing and just stick yourself into the video at some strategic moment and then have your great, great label white maker person attach a name to the cameo so uh, we all know which uh, cliffside ite we are seeing. Who knows a brief exposure, uh, sorry, who knows what a brief exposure might mean to your future? Uh, well, we're very well aware what a brief exposure might mean to our future, so we will refrain, maintain our anim anonymity. Anyway, that was very funny. Sharon, um, we're trying to fix the glare today. I hope it works. We'll know as soon as you do. And it's great to hear from you. Okay, where were we? This is where we were. Numbers 15, uh, 22 through 41. And here's the list specifically, uh, 20, uh, 32 through 36. And that brought us to the man gathering wood on the Sabbath. And here is the list of those uh, four to five uh, scriptures. I have a man gathering wood on the Sabbath. Specifically, the wood is in the desert or in the wilderness, and he is out gathering it. And as you know, if you were here last week, that resulted in him being put to death. So that is an extraordinarily difficult passage for most to understand, even though it really isn't. It is clear and as obvious it can be, but uh, as soon as we dealt with it last week, and we'll get back to it a little bit today, but mostly next, next week, as soon as you see a man gathering wood in the wilderness, what should you do? Well, 
you start yourself going around and gathering wood. So you go everywhere in the Bible where we have wood. And now the most obvious, of course, is the wood on the cross of Christ. That is the most obvious. Second most, I would think, is the wood that's in the Ark of the Covenant or the wood of which the Ark of the Covenant is made. Again, let me repeat. Many will tell you that that Ark of the Covenant is representative of a coffin. We'll discuss that next week. But aside from that for today, the wood of the Ark of the Testimony is completely encapsulated by gold. So God has taken the wood, the acacia wood, and he has completely covered it. None of the wood of the Ark of the Testimony, Ark of the Covenant, same thing, is visible. Not one piece of wood is visible. Not one shred of wood is visible. The only thing that is visible is the gold. All you can see is the gold. And they're displayed in Scripture, in symbolism, in typology, if you will, pick what you wish, is the fundamental truth of the hypostatic union. By hypostatic union, I mean this is the mystery of godliness. This is God-man, God-adding humanity. And you see that the gold, the deity, completely covers the wood, humanity. It is the subordination of Christ's perfect humanity. Christ is human. He is, however, perfect humanity. Sinless humanity, but his humanity is subordinated to his absolute infinite deity. That is the fundamental lesson of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I know we have some films coming out on Christ. And typically, whenever I see a film, Bill the Cow told me that, no, maybe one of them is not too bad. That's really terrific. But generally, films about Christ... In particular, this one that's attempting to portray an infinite God as a child. Uh, It's easy to forecast a heavy raining down of biblical illiteracy in those kinds of films. I would expect that film to be horrible. I don't think I will be disappointed in my assessment. I don't think I can even begin to describe how bad it will be. I think it will be really bad. Just from the real small snippets that I have seen. Jesus Christ came as an infant child. There's no dispute of that. But remember, the wood is encased by the gold. You may not see the deity there, but the deity completely covers the wood. Have no position otherwise. How do you think that movie is going to do? going to completely obscure the gold, and all we'll see is the wood. And will it be perfect humanity? It will be sinful humanity. Have no position where the wood is visible. Recognize when the wood is visible, when when popular culture does so. Popular culture instinctively, willingly, wantonly degrades the godhood of Christ. Anyway, wood, as you've... um, probably figured out by now if you haven't been here for the last few weeks, it's primarily a symbol of humanity. And God added himself. In other words, humanity, God added humanity. God also describes it as attaching himself to humanity, descending down to his creation. Jonah's worm is described, the worm of Jonah that eats the poisonous gourd, the crimson worm, the scarlet worm, attaches itself to humanity, 
or I'm sorry, attaches itself to wood and dies, giving birth. So it gives life, red life, if you will, blood-giving life, life-giving blood after it attaches to humanity. So Jonah's worm pictures this, as does Jacob's ladder, the descending and ascending of Proverbs 30 and John 3. Both of those, the worm and the ladder, have wood as an element, so we could easily go there. But we didn't. Instead, we went to Numbers 15, and we went to Numbers 15, 22 through 41, because of the crossbeam of Luke. If you remember, and this is again kind of a revisiting or a recap to catch everybody, get them all, get you all back on the bus. Whenever you carry a crossbeam in a crucifixion, you are admitting guilt. That is how you know that the crossbeam, the struggle of the crossbeam did not occur for Christ. Anytime you see a movie that shows Christ struggling with the crossbeam, that is in error. Because the Romans believed that the struggling under the crossbeam was a confession of sinful guilt. And Christ had none. Perfect humanity. So the crossbeam of Luke 14:27, and then Christ healing on the Sabbath, Luke 14, 1-6, sent us to Numbers uh, 15, 22 through 41. Okay, got all that? That's where we were. And here was our list from last week. And now you had, what did you have? Well, you had 15 minutes to memorize this list. How'd you do? Okay, I'm going to erase it and then there'll be what? A test. And you must score at least 65% to get any brisket. That's how we go. Now, I did that really so the people on the Internet could see the list again and they can go back and copy it, um, hopefully without glare this time. We shut all the doors to stop the glare. We locked over the windows. So essentially, it's like any other normal winter day now here in Alaska. We have sun for those of you on the Internet. It's amazing. And we will have sun now all the way through to August. And then it snows about the 15th of August. It's almost a joke. Okay, it's advisable now. Let's go to Luke 14. 1 through 6. Another piece of wood, if you will. We're going to put it on the board. It's not actually a piece of wood this time. Luke 14. Uh, 24 through 35 is where the wood is. This is a little bit, uh, a little bit more subtle, but it belongs in this discussion. I hope you will see why. Remember Luke 15, 32 through 36 is a man that is gathering wood on the Sabbath and he is executed for doing so. And last week we covered who he might be or actually who he is and the great evil that is occurring there. We'll do more of that next week. So let's now go to Luke 14 and start reading it and see what you think. I'll read it too, as I always do. But while I'm reading it, I want you to keep in mind the erased numbers 15, 32 through 36. Let me really quickly flip this over. Because if you weren't here last week, you missed this, and this is or the week before, I'm sorry. If you weren't here the week before, there is the flow, flow chart that we're currently evaluating. That is telling us how we're getting where we're at. Right now, we got to Luke 14. It went to Numbers 21. Did I have Numbers 15 on here anywhere? I have wood here. 
Numbers 15. And now we're going back to Luke 14. On through 6 today, maybe. So here's our flow chart. What we're doing is exactly what I said. You find something in the Bible, if it confuses you, you go find every other place where the same elements are repeated and you will solve it. If you don't, you will likely never solve it. Here's a good example. If you try to take this particular portion of Luke 14, 1 through 6, out of context, separate it out, you're going to have difficulty with it. You will not understand it. Now, it happened as he, this is Christ, as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath. Do you see how we get to Numbers 15.32? I have a man gathering wood on the Sabbath. I now have Christ and a Sabbath. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answered, spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them, saying, Which of you, having a son... Now you're... Translation might say donkey, but I think the correct uh, word there would be son. Which of you, and I'll explain that as time goes by, which of you having a son or an ox? There is a contrast. The donkey or the ox would be very similar. The point of the text, I believe, in context gives us the word son instead of donkey. Is donkey a symbol of humanity? Yes, it is. Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And and they could not answer him regarding these things. Okay, so here we go. List maker is going to list, as always. Here's what we've got. Jesus himself. By the way, who is he? Well, yes, he's God. God himself. The gold over the wood. Went into the house. He goes into a house. Whose house is it? It is the ruler of the Pharisee. That is interesting, I hope you think. And he's going to eat. What's he going to eat? Bread. God eating bread, and they watched him, so they're watching him, and they're watching closely. And then what happens next? Let me help you. Behold! Whenever you see behold in the Bible, that is the biggest stop sign you can have, as you know. You stop right there because something amazing is going to happen. So I have a behold here. So what comes after that is incredible. Did you see it? Hopefully you did. So here we are. Gee, there's a certain man in there. G, what comes after G? Thank you, H. And that man comes in front of Christ, so if you wish, before Christ. 
this is a behold. There's something absolutely unbelievable happening now. And what is he like? He has dropsy. What does that mean? I have medical professionals in here, so if I'm incorrect, you can add, add at will. I'm going to say that he is swollen, and he is dying. He's got kidney failure. He is unable to get the fluid out of his extremities. He's swollen. He's dying. It's likely a bone or a blood, a blood cancer. This is not a man in good health. Am I correct, sir? And madam, how did I do? Do you disagree? Okay, I got a thumbs up. I'm good. The medical professional, uh, uh, what did he do? Validates my description. And who's in there? Who's described as being in the house? By the way, how big a house is it? How many people are in there? I have one, I have two groups of people, don't I? I have lawyers. And I have Pharisees. Some of you would ask, what is the difference? How impolite of you to do a lawyer joke. And he asks the question, doesn't he? He says, God does. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And what happens? Silence. And then he takes the man and heals him. And then he answers. God answers. So he's obviously answering his own question, isn't he? Who among you, if they have a son or an ox, and it falls into a pit, doesn't pull him out? Again, they could not, didn't they would not, they could not answer. So he asks two questions. They go silent on one and they cannot answer on the other. Okay, so there's your list. Yes, sir. Very much the same, yes. For those of you on the Internet, uh, Bill the Cow is, is looking at this and notices the similarity to the woman caught in, in adultery. And that is all correct. It's also elsewhere. It's in Matthew 12 in another form. So this happens a lot. But for us, it makes a direct relationship back to Numbers 15, 32 through 36. So. We'll focus there for a while. Well, now, <coughs> hopefully you began asking questions about this. And if you didn't, I will, of course, do the customary obvious questions. What is really going on here? It's following a behold. Something is going on here. Be suspicious of simple explanations because this is far from simple. Let's just ask a couple questions. Whose house is it? It's the ruler of the Pharisees. Who is the ruler of the Pharisees? Some of your Bibles will say a ruler. Some will say the ruler. I'm going to go with the ruler. Who is the ruler? This ruler. Who's in the house? Who's running the house? Who owns the house? Are there, are there other rulers of the Pharisees? What is the hierarchy? 
How many rulers do the Pharisees have? What are the Pharisees called by God in Scripture? They're called what? Vipers, serpents, snakes. Which of the serpents is the big serpent here? Who is this guy? I hope you saw what I did there, right? I moved you to serpents on purpose because what have we been studying? Exodus 7. It's on the other side in the flow chart. Exodus 7 is where I have the rod that becomes a serpent. And the rod swallows the other rods. We've been discussing the bronze serpent in Numbers 21. Remember that on the board? I hope you do. Christ identifies himself as the bronze serpent. And you can make an easy case, I believe, that Christ also demonstrates that he is the rod of Aaron or Moses. So what happens in Exodus 7 when I have the rod or the bronze serpent or the rod, let me just call it the rod, when I have the rod surrounded by hissing snakes? Right here, what do I have? I have Jesus surrounded by hissing snakes, don't I? And they are watching him closely. What happened at Exodus 7? The rod swallowed all of the other snakes. What do you think is going to happen then in Luke 14, 1 through 6? Same thing. Same thing. So ask the question, why did the ruler of the Pharisees want... Didn't you ask yourself, what in the world would the ruler of the Pharisees... Why did he want Christ in his house? What's this guy thinking? It's on a Sabbath. Come into my house. Why aren't they in the street? They're not in the street. They're in the house. What did they do? And why are they doing it? Obviously, this is a trap. Watching him closely. They think they have him trapped again. They're always trying to trap him. What do you think is going on in Numbers 15, 32 through 36? The man gathering wood in the desert and on the Sabbath. He's trying to trap somebody again. Start making the correlations, if you will, while I keep going. Obviously, this is a trap. The Pharisee committee got together, had a meeting, and once again, they came up with a plan. They're always doing it almost every time. They see a collision of two forces that cannot be resolved in their minds. They think they're going to be able to put something that is unsolvable in front of Christ. That's the plan. It's always the plan. Over and over again, it's the same thing. Ultimately, you have to think of Satan's first lie. Satan said there was no solution to man's free will or angelic free will and God's omniscience. And therefore, there is no accountability and there is no judgment of sin. That's Satan's first lie. If you haven't, that's a little inside baseball. That's Genesis 15, Matthew 4, Ezekiel 28, 16, the abundance of your traffic. Satan's first lie, again, to repeat, that's where it is at Ezekiel 28, 16, Matthew 26, 36 through 39, the cup. If you don't know that, all of those are discussing the solution to free will sin and God's omniscience. One of the great lies of Satan is, is that God cannot judge us because he has made sin. He is the maker of sin. His omniscience requires so. That is a lie. If you're not familiar with, it, with any of that, let it go for today. Let's go back here. The Pharisee ruler has a trap. He sprung his unsolvable trap, or what he thinks is an unsolvable trap. Where did the swollen man come from? How did the swollen man get into the house? i got a swollen, dying man. 
How, what's he look like? Just try to imagine what this man looked like. What kind of condition is he in? He's in a house. How did he get in the house? Where did he come from? How did he get there? Is he just passing by? Hey, looks like a Sabbath meal going on here uh, at the snake house. I think I'm going to go in and get some bread. Is that how he got in there? Obviously not. Again, note the behold. It follows the behold. There's a certain man comes before Christ, swollen, dying, probably of cancer, surrounded by lawyers and Pharisees. Do you think he just happened by... How does he get in the house? How does he get in front of Christ? How does he get by the lawyers, the Pharisees? How powerful is this ruler? How evil is this ruler of the Pharisees? A certain man can't even walk, I don't think. Can't he even stand. How sick is he? How close to death is he? I think he's right on the verge. Good news for him, really. The perishing man, Creator God, is right there. He's standing in front of Creator God. Now, it would be bad news if this was the great white throne and he's unsaved. But in this case, he's standing in front of God himself who can heal him instantly. Anyway, omniscient God who knows all things asks a question. Does he know the answer to his own question? Duh. Why does he ask the question? He asks it aloud. Whenever God asks a question aloud, he, you know it's for you. Or you know it's for who's ever watching. He doesn't ask questions. He's omniscient God. And he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Let me repeat it. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Does he know the answer to that question? Yes, he does. We just had a catastrophic technical moment here. The camera has rolled underneath somebody's feet. Is it retrievable, TJ? Yes. Just keep going. This is what I call keeping going, TJ. Those of you who were wondering what happened to the picture, fortunately we have redundancy. That's our plan. I should say hi. Where is it? Oh, there it is. Notice I'm wearing black. I hope I look a lot better than typically. Now I can keep going. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? What is your answer? You're in the room. Is it lawful? All he got was what? Silence. What's that imply? No one wanted to answer. Why not? Now, obviously, the Pharisees know things. It's really extraordinary what they knew, if you think about it. They knew that Jesus Christ would come into the house. How did they know that? They knew that he would sit down in the house and that he would eat in the house. How did they know that? They knew that he might or that he would, or that he could, heal a dying man on the precipice of death. How did they know that? That's simple, really. They were eyewitnesses. They've been eyewitnesses for a long time. 
they saw Jesus Christ. They followed him everywhere he went. They knew people. Thousands and thousands of people, specifically lepers, which is a Leviticus 14 reference, as you know, but also thousands and thousands of people had been cured, healed by him. He grew limbs on people, put new eyes in. Obviously, someone is calling me and leaving a message on the phone. We'll wait. Listen, the... uh, These are just some of the issues we, we deal with here willingly, and we're fortunate and grateful that we're able to come here. So it's okay. They don't even know we're here most of the time, unless something doesn't work that we're loaning them. Then I get in trouble, yes. But my point, going back, they knew people who were healed, these Pharisees did, cured by Christ, thousands and thousands. They saw him do it over and over again. Maybe hundreds of thousands healed everybody. Thus, the most significant of the obvious questions. Why did the Pharisees so despise the only one who could save people from death? They, in fact, don't not only despise him, they seek to destroy him. Matthew 12:14 specifically says they plot to destroy him. He's going around all over Israel healing people of anything and everything. I ask this question uh, often. Who thinks like this? Who wants to destroy the person that heals everybody and anybody? Why do they want to destroy him? Admittedly, in different forms. But it's of great importance that each of you fashion your own answer to this question. This is, of course, the motive of Satan or the motive of the Antichrist. In this case, it is the ruler of the Pharisees or the brood of the vipers. Who thinks like this? Why would they deny life? Why do they want to deny life? To the world. Here's life. The world is buried in death. Life comes. They want, to, they want to destroy it. Or in this case, him. He resurrects people. Let's, let's have a meeting and say, how can we stop somebody from resurrecting people from the dead? Let's have a committee meeting. How can we stop people from this guy from going to uh, Providence and Regional and emptying the hospital. How, why don't we stop the guy going to the cemetery, pulling people out of there? Let's stop him. Who thinks like this? Again, this is the motive of Satan or the motive of the Antichrist. In this case, it is the motive of the Pharisees. Now, back to where we are. This dying, swollen man is somehow now, before his creator, inside the ruler of the snake's house. Did the ruler of the snakes know this swollen, dying man? I submit that he did. The swollen, dying man is essential to the plot, to their plot. What's their ruse? What's the role of the swollen, dying man? To repeat again, this is a behold. Something of profound doctrinal importance is about to be revealed. Jesus speaks to the lawyers. I got a house full of snakes and lawyers. Again, the joke leaps off the page, doesn't it? That's what I got. Why 
Are there lawyers there? Are they are they insurance lawyers? Are they political lawyers? What kind of lawyers are they? Why did the Pharisees need lawyers? Who are these lawyers? Obviously, they are religious law experts. The Pharisees went out and got the most expert people on Torah law, on the Old Testament law, on Mosaic law. And they had them in the house because they have a plan. There's a whole bunch of them. Think, if you will, like this. The Supreme Court sitting in a house waiting to watch something. The best lawyers they had. That's not necessarily the case with our Supreme Court, is it? But obviously these are religious law scholars. And notice that God asked the lawyers, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Do the lawyers know the answer? It's clearly implied that the lawyers refuse to answer. Is it because they don't know or they do know? It's, it's equally conspicuous, I'm sorry, conspicuous that the lawyers have no will to answer the question. They're not going to answer. Either they don't want to answer or they can't answer. We'll have to decide. Do they know that this is the Lord God Almighty? I don't believe they do. They're not going to answer, so they're silent. Jesus' question results in absolute silence. It goes really quiet. Now the question is, is did the Pharisees and the lawyers, when they had their middle committee meeting to try to track God, think about that for a second. They didn't anticipate this question. So what was their plan? I don't believe they anticipated the question in any, any means. That's my opinion, I should say. So they didn't expect it. The lawyers who specialize in Sabbath law, because this is happening on a Sabbath, so that's their specialty, who offer opinions on what can and cannot be done on the Sabbath, they're silent. How many times do the Sabbath lawyers go silent? By the way, prior to Christ, had anyone ever been healed on the Sabbath? In other words, had this question actually come up before? How about raised from the dead on the Sabbath? How about the, which is the ultimate healing, right? Good, good health is merely the slow, slowest possible rate of death from decay. I submit that uh, this was not considered a legal matter. Because nobody got healed. There wasn't any healing on the Sabbath. Now what do we got? Since Christ has come, what do we got on the Sabbath? We got healing everywhere. The place is flooded with, with healing on the Sabbath. And Christ fully intends to make it so, which is the point. He is burying them in healing on the Sabbath issues. Christ particularly favors the Sabbath. Luke makes it clear. Luke talks about it over and over again. The Sabbath is his healing day primarily. The Sabbath is mercy day. Christ's day of mercy. Go and, and start accumulating all of the Sabbath healings. Now connect that back to Numbers 15.32 where I have another person gathering wood on the Sabbath. 
realizing fully that I am about to say something speculative. Uh, please don't send me lawyers. Uh, lawyers are letters. Uh, nonetheless, I, I believe it to be worthwhile to do so. Obviously, I'm going to do it. I've wondered a lot about this certain swollen, dying man. I wanted to know what he was dying of. I wanted to know how much time he had left. I wanted to know who he was. I wanted to know how he got to the snake ruler's house. And there he is standing in front of Christ. I wanted to know what he was thinking. The anatomy that put him into this position. What are the chances it could just go grab somebody off the street and bring him in, set him in the house? Not good. These are meticulous, diabolical, manipulative evil men with a plan to destroy Christ. And I think the certain man knows he's being used to trap Christ. So I want to know why he went along with it. You know, you're about to die and somebody comes up to you and says, how about doing something evil? I hope you would say no. And this is a very religious society. So how did this man get in a position where he's doing something evil, participating in evil? Does he know that Christ has healed thousands and thousands and thousands of people? Probably does. Who doesn't know that? So why is he doing it? I think he knows that he's there to trap Christ, and so I speculate that uh, he might be a snake. That's probably very likely mathematically. I would indicate that I would say that the math would indicate this is the greatest probability. Now I will concede that it's not a substantial or prohibitive resultant. But just grant me the premise, the likelihood for today. God, Christ is continually confronting Pharisees. Did any of them abandon Phariseeism? Yes. Nicodemus. Paul. We've had Pharisees that figured out, that, wait a minute, this really is God himself. So, just... Let's just go with it and see how it works out. If the certain man is a dying Pharisee, what is he expecting? What he got was silence. Had they gone through the whole plan? I'm sure they did. Here's where you're going to stand in front and something's going to happen. What happened was God asked the question and there was silence. So now what do we got? I had a room full of people trying to spring a trap. Christ asks a question, and I got dead quiet. And the swollen, dying man is standing there, and everybody else is quiet. Not a sound. What's the obvious question now? How long does Christ let the silence go? How long... God allow the silence to last. I think he waited a long time. Let me ask 
Another question. How loud is his voice? When he asked the question, how loud was the question? At some point, God takes, it says, let's read it together again, and he took him. God takes him. What did that look like? How far away from Christ was he? How did Christ take him? God takes the certain swollen, dying man. I try to imagine it. What did it feel like for the guy to be taken by God Almighty? How did that feel? This man is in the hand, in the hands of his Creator, and he is healed. Duh. Of course he's healed. And now I have a healed man. What is, what, what's going on in that room? Who's saying what? How heavy and distorted and broken down is this man? And now he is taken by God. What does that mean? Christ takes him and heals him. How long did he hold him there? What does the man now look like? Let's just speculate some more. How old was he when he walked in the room? How old is he now? What does he look like? Does he have to wear black with black stripes anymore? Probably not. I do have a white tie here. Or white on the tie. I couldn't find an all black tie. I'll have to get one for the next week. I plan to wear black every day while I'm on camera. I thought it would be hilarious. And no one would know if it's the same black. Because black all looks the same. You'll never catch me. How long did Christ hold him? And then Christ now asks his pre- or answers, I'm sorry, his previous question. Here's what he says. Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? So now we start to think. A son has fallen into a pit. And it's the Sabbath day. Christ, as Christ does, saves somebody on the Sabbath. He saved this guy on the Sabbath. Jesus is the Sabbath. You could, as I said last week, erase Sabbath every time, and put the word Christ. Where is it? Where is Sabbath? I don't even see it. How could I not have Sabbath on here? Under K. Thank you. I could erase Sabbath and put Christ. Jesus Christ is the same as. He is the great Sabbath rest. So Jesus Christ on Jesus Christ. He went, Jesus Christ went in the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on Jesus Christ. I could read it that way. It would be perfectly, totally, doctrinally sound. The great Sabbath rest is Christ. On his day that, it, that testifies of him, he goes and takes a son out of the pit. Notice what follows is more silence. 
They don't say anything. How am I doing? Let me try. Running out of time. It's TJ's fault. Can't ever be my fault. Okay, it's always my fault. More silence. So what does Christ do? Look at the next verse 7. Because there's silence, that's essentially what it says, and they could not answer him regarding these things. So he told a parable. He told a parable to those who were invited. Now you know everybody's invited. Now you know the certain swollen man's invited. When he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, so all of these guys went in and got in their assigned seats, if you will. The, they had an order. They had a hierarchy. They had a priority. They chose the best places, saying to them. He noted how they did that. Of course he noted he's omniscient God. When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. Who's the more honorable guy that got invited? Swollen dying man got invited, didn't he? Got pulled out of the pit on the Sabbath. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. What did Christ just do to the swollen dying man? He put him in the best place, didn't he? Give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who has invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher, then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and who, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. A fair, a parable for the invited. Nobody said anything. So because of that, Christ now has this parable. That's a human way of looking at it. A swollen certain man was invited. When you are invited to a wedding feast, is by the way, is this a wedding feast? Don't do what these people did. These people sat where they shouldn't have sit. Sit. Satted. That's not a word. I'll take it though. Don't do that because somebody who's about to be saved, more honorable than you, that's a big rut row. Don't sit down in the highest place. Where do we supposed to sit down? He tells us. Where are all of us supposed to sit down? He invites us. Where are we supposed to sit? All of us. We're supposed to sit in the lowest place. If you don't sit in the lowest place, what's your problem now? You're going to be asked to move. Is that good news? Not good news. It's only good news if you're in the lowest place and you are invited to sit in the highest place. Humble yourself. You have no right to assume you are saved. Sit in the sinner's seats. We're all sinners. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Luke 18, 9 through 14. You're told to sit in the saved seat. Whoever thinks he needs no forgiveness or mercy, that, by the way, is the same thing. Am I suspicious of a man that tells me that he needs no forgiveness? Yes, I am. Boy, am I ever. That's a man who's sitting where he ought not to sit. Will I get letters on that? Yeah. 
But you know, we're pretty big in Bahrain. So I don't think they'll care as much. He who humbles himself will be given mercy. Salvation. Same thing. So there we have two starts, if you will. Two Sabbaths. The man gathering sticks on the Sabbath. Numbers 15.32-36. And the swollen man healed by Christ on the Sabbath. Next week, we will put them together. Let's rise and be dismissed.